And you're all very welcome to the first episode of Bluescast for 2021. Uh, fantastic to be back. Last year's two podcast episodes went very well as a pilot, so this year we're delighted now to be rolling this out to the public over 2021. I just want to firstly say a huge thank you to all the patron subscribers of last year. Those lads are Adam O'Manny, Daniel Condon, Alan Forrestal, Paul Walsh, Sean Purcell, Paul Brown, Martin Power, Jack Hutchinson, James Ryan, Wayne Brown will be joining us. Um, does a bit of work for WLR, already worked full time WLR, but hopefully he'll be helping us out with the podcast a little bit. Mary Doyle, Owen Kelly, Shane Power, Declan Tommen, Adam Martin, Nick Gaffney, Anthony O'Shea, Noel Roach, Skip Kelly, Megan Walsh, Connor Barry, Paul O'Toole, Owen Leanne, Garvin O'Keefe, and Alan Forrest. I just want to say a huge thank you to all of those subscribers. They kept us going in the off-season and they've been contributing to the patron over the course of the, the last few months. So a huge thank you to every one of those. And very welcome, of course, is Cameron Gordon and Adam Rylands, who've just joined the, the patron. So you're very welcome, lads. Our first guest today is Mike Egan. Um, and I have a few questions for Mike, as well as Mike will outline his plans for 2021. Yeah, so before we get started, uh, just to say in regards to funding for the club, um, we're very grateful to have ourselves as, as patrons, but I would recommend if you try and jump on to our new club lottery, which is doing very well at the moment. Uh, the first prize is 500 euros on the 25th of January. That'll be run every two weeks, so that's fantastic. There's been a huge uptake already, so I thoroughly recommend jumping on there if you can. And of course, our new club website has been launched with an online store, and the online store as well is doing very well at the moment with new range coming out all the time. So I'd really recommend if you can give that a new look. Okay, so to, to get started, Mike Egan, you're very welcome. How are you? I'm very good, Niall, yeah. Good form. First time I've ever done an interview with a mask on, but... Well, that makes two of us. <laughs> that makes two of us. So you took over as head of the academy over the half-season. Um, how does that feel? Yeah, no, it's, it, I suppose it, it's something that was being discussed in the background for a while because we didn't have a head of academy last year. So we tried to run the academy through a sort of committee form and basis, which doesn't really work because people need a point of contact for answers and for information. So when the opportunity came and was put to me, I said, yeah, it's, it's a role now at this stage of my own football development that I said I was eager to take on with a club of the calibre of Waterford and the, the calibre of the players in the southeast. And can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, originally from Kenny a long time ago. I was one of those weird Kenny lads who preferred soccer to hurling. So grew up in Kenny, moved away shortly after school, my career was in banking and I moved to the UK for a number of years and played a decent standard of amateur football over there, so I kept the love of the game. Then came back and didn't really go into coaching, stayed playing until I was about 35 years of age with Newbridge Town and Leinster Senior League and AIB. And then I almost fell into management because Newbridge Town approached me and asked me would I be player manager. Now I don't know if they want me to be manager or they want me to stop playing, but... At that stage, I took on the role of player manager in, in, in Newbridge Town. That was my first move into coaching. And of course, that came very natural to you with all the football experience that you had. How was it? How was, were you managing the banking at the same time? Yeah, I suppose my, the different, my, my hobby and my passion was always football. But my career had introduced me into management and leadership and, and coaching. So I had gone through my, a lot of the management training in the banks. And, and that sort of stood to me from the point of view of being able to move from being a player in that dressing room to being a manager in that dressing room. So I didn't find the transition that difficult. 
that usually is the big thing for people making that transition. Just it's so for some people, no matter how good they were on the football field, they just never seem to make that transition over. And of course, it came natural enough to yourself. I see. I think as I said, I think when you're, I mean, I was a branch manager in a bank at, at 29 years of age. So when you got that management experience, you were able to bring it from work and bring it into a football environment. It's more difficult for guys who maybe have never managed anybody or haven't had management training to make that transition. That's a very interesting point because uh, you're not the only famous Kilkenny bank uh, person that made a transition into sport. And of course, there was the red hair Kilkenny hurler. What's his name? <laughs> he was a bank manager in, in Bank of Ireland. And he was here in Waterford actually for a while. He was a famous Kilkenny hurler. But oh, Peter Barry. Was it Peter Barry? It was Peter Barry, was yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, uh, was, yeah. Is there elements in the banking industry that suits you well when you bring it when you bring no, it into I, I wouldn't think so I think what I found is there's elements in management management itself. that you can bring to any industry so I would have had it in football but I would have gone from banking into into a property development company with interest in the UK I would have then run my own consultancy and helping small businesses during the the crash of the Kelty Tiger I would have advised an awful lot of business owners how to get through that tough crisis and dealing with their banks and trying to come out the other end and then it led me into a, a career in, in leadership down with, with WIT as well. So yeah. I find a set of skills transfer to any industry now if you, if, you, if you use them properly. Yeah, and of course, you had a huge amount of success in the Leinster Senior League, of course, winning the title there. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it was an interesting journey because the, the, when I came back to take over Newbridge Town as player manager, I arrived at a training session and there was five players and I was told everyone else had left. So I had three weeks to season start and I had five players. So we built a squad and built it mainly on the, on the younger players. So I brought 16 and 17 year olds into a first team in the senior division. Now it was the senior division of Leinster Senior League. So it was a tough baptism for the young lads and we struggled for a lot of that season. And we eventually avoided relegation with two games to go. And then the following year, we were sort of outsiders, well outsiders for a title, but what people hadn't noticed was that in the last 10 games of the previous season, we only lost once in that run to keep us up. So we actually had a league winning form at the end of the season, added in one or two guys, and then we went on to win the senior division for the only time in the club's history the following year, which was was a great achievement. Was that the same year then that you picked up the Manager of the Year award? Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't join the Manager of the Year award for the the full league at that year. So I was a member of the year, because I remember that, the honour winning the award, but then I stopped playing. So I won an award for being the best manager. I've gone two stone and weight, so <laughs> 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 no side. <laughs> so That's it. I find Yeah. Actually, look, that, that, that does happen as well. Yeah. You find that an awful lot with anyone who was doing elite sports as well. Once they stop that training, you know, they're still taking on the same fuel. Well, I was still, <laughs> I, 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 I never separated enough. I was still inclined to have the couple of points with the lads after matches. And as yeah. you said, still eating the same amount of calories, but not burning not the same. Gone, no, yeah, no. exactly. So. Uh, and you mentioned then as well, of course, you, you moved on towards the WIT arena. Um, and of course, I didn't know that you had any involvement with the arena itself at the time. I, I, I assumed you were just purely working with yourself. But what can you tell us about your role in no, there? It got, it, it got to a position, I think around four to five years ago now, I was the consultancy business on the banking side because things had settled down or had gone so illegal that you couldn't help clients anymore. So I said, look, I need another avenue. And then I, I, I was sitting down reading a job advertisement and I said, I was living in Kildare and I said, job in the southeast. And I read the job and went, well, that's me. <laughs> that description is me. And then we started talking about going back, because being from Kilkenny, my wife was from Kilkenny as well, would we make the journey back to the southeast? And 
So we looked at it and said, yeah. So I, I, I went for the job and got the job. So it's involved. It's called WAT Campus Services. Our yeah. brand name is Novus. But it runs all the non-academic services for the college. So we have 405 bedrooms, we have the pub, we have five or six restaurants, we have the arena. So it's it's a quite a multifaceted business. That includes probably the kitchen and area in the WAT arena as well? well. It includes all the kitchens, all the restaurants. We Is there a bar out there? Hmm? Is there a small bar out there? No, in the arena, no. But there's a bar out there, but we only use it for events bars, so we get events yeah. licenses. Okay. So we have 100, like a full employment, we have 160 staff when it's all up and running fully. So it's, it's, it's good because we run the Cork Road and the accommodation blocks as well in town. So it, it's a nice business, interesting business. Yeah, and of course, there's some incredible work going on out there, uh, in particular at the WAT Arena. I mean, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal. What can you tell us about the arena? Well, it, we, when, I, when I came into the job, it wasn't finished, so it wasn't complete. So we had a sort of, I think what was called a hurling centre of excellence, but it hadn't got the main part arena. had dressing rooms and pitches and there was a, a soccer pitch stuck down the back end as a, a loose end. Now we've grown that to, before, before the pandemic hit, we were up to 400,000 visitors in a year. So it's an incredible, like through our footfall tracker. So it's an incredible amount of people through the building from everything from concerts to seminars to exhibitions to being a home of multi-sports. I mean, I think one night I was out there, there was 14 different sports being played in the arena at the one time. Yeah. Now, my own views is the way we should develop sport all over the country should be holistic sports facilities. We should go away from that one, one sport facility because it isn't value for money and it's not good for the community. Yeah. So I'm proud of the model we've built that we can accommodate so many sports. And our rule is, if we do it, we do it properly. So if you're in for a hurling match, your experience should be the same as someone in for playing table tennis. Yeah. It should be an equal experience, and that's what we've worked on. Yeah, no, it is, it is an absolutely incredible facility, and from a club's perspective, of course, we're delighted to have the WAT mm. Arena on board, and they've been incredible to us. You know, we've had footballers out there who said they've seen the equipment out there, and they said that it was equivalent to what the likes of Man City and Man United would have access to. Yeah, we're very you proud, know. because John, John Wendell is a general manager, and John, John now would have given the first team players last year complimentary memberships so it was good to see the lads come and go but we did the same for the water senior hurlers and camogie players so we're, we're proud that Waterford FC is one of our partner clubs I think when you sometimes read social media and you see the kick in the club gets as a business entity we're proud to have the club as a partner because it's one of the few national operators that comes from Waterford yeah. I mean outside the hurlers footballers camogie we don't have a national rugby team you know so it's yeah. it's a big presence for us and the fact that the academy has it as its home is a great synergy for us because what is the college looking for? It's looking for 17, 18, 19 year olds to go to college. Yeah. What does the academy have? 17, 18, 19 year olds. So it's, the synergy is very good. Now. And this is, and you touched on it slightly to the, a bit of a kick in that we do get on social media. And thankfully, I don't pay too much heed to it. But what I would say is it's probably down to the fact that people just don't get to see the level of professionalism within the club on a day-to-day -day basis that you'd have and myself would have access to. So when we travel to the WAT arena and we see the academies, the 13th, 15th, 17th, and on, everyone is working hard. Physios are working with them to get mm. them fit. We have, you know, training and coaches looking to bring the players on and it's so professional. And then you turn around, you might open up Facebook and you see someone getting the ball again. So, you know, you can yeah, see all, that. It's always, I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's all Perfect. perception v reality. It's, 
Because if you try to defend a position, someone just says, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? That's, you know, that's I, I, That's the same, but I find externally, like from the college and all, the, the, the awareness of the, and the, the perception of the Waterford FC brand externally is quite good. Yeah. But how long that lasts if people keep reading that it's under attack? But, I, but I, it's, it's something now I can say, if I've been at the Kenny man, having only moved back to the area in the last four years, I'm very proud of my connection and I see a lot of professional activity that goes on within the club. So for anyone listening now, we've been endorsed by a Kilkenny person, which is a huge green tick. What we'll do is we'll just move on a little bit to talk just about getting involved with Waterford FC itself. So you joined the club back in the 2018 season, wasn't it? Yeah, I had been asked. In fact, I was doing a bit of contact because I would have been in I would have discussed things with Paul Cleary when he was looking for training facilities when he was working for John Sullivan and the club had no money I mean had no money and came sort of cap in hand and said look can we train to keep to finish off a season and being a football person I said of course you can train there's no like we're here for the community so we, we allowed the lads train and that was my link in and then I got involved with Paul and I think and Tony in part of doing the strategic plan for the club when the FAI gave everyone 5,000 to do a strategic plan so I was involved in that planning phase. Okay. And that planning phase, I suppose, then led to the ownership of Lee Power coming in at that stage, which on the ground didn't change a whole lot. Yeah. But it gave some stability. It said at least the club knew it had next season. Yeah, yeah. Whether you knew you had to. But I think before that came in, I don't know if the people realised how bad it was because I know from Dieter and Paul, the club was looking to finish that season. Yeah. So the ownership gave everyone a boost to say, at least we can go forward and say... There is a season and then they were introducing the under-13s National League and I can't even think who came from and asked me was because I had my A licence. Was I interested in, in getting involved with the club? I was doing a little bit but not much with everybody like a Kenny at junior football. Yeah. But I said, yeah, that's, look, National League is exciting, it's interesting. I had done the under-12s in Kenny so I said, look, let's bring them down and see what we have down here. So I was happy to get involved in my so it's great to have to, to have someone of your vast experience here. You touched on it a little bit in terms of how bad things were financially and, and things like that. And I think anybody who's ever struggled in life and, and every, you know we've all gone through mm-hmm. some hardships at some stage. And just to touch on it from a football perspective, not having to worry if the club is going to be here next week—that's an awful weight mm-hmm. off, off shoulders, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I only knew him during that time, but I think. What Paul Cleary did at that time, from my perspective, again, I don't, I didn't know John Sullivan, the previous owner. What Paul Cleary did, because he would be my face of Waterford FC, to keep the club alive at that phase. And I would use the word keep it alive, so those words, mm. to me, it was on his knees. So when you got to the stage where you need to actually be sort of going around the place looking for free training facilities, that's how bad it was. That's where the club had gone. And I, I couldn't see talking to Paul or doing the strategic plan where there was a viable future for the club because there was no lineup of supporters waiting to buy the club or raise enough money to buy the club so what would it have become some a club struggling at the bottom end of the of the first division if they were lucky that is the truth and how bad it was back then and of course that's one thing people do forget when when there is criticism is maybe it's the same that happened with the 2007 crash people just have forgotten you know just how bad things were and yeah, you know well, and they're criticising now saying money should be spent right now we're debating for the senior team we're debating big players to sign at the time when things were that bad we didn't we well it's funny that things go on circuit because 
My son Sean now was caught who was coaching the fifteens and a bunch of right. stuff. He's A license. He was down here as a nineteen year old goalkeeper playing for Kildare down in Waterford. I came down to watch him and there wasn't 150 people in the ground to watch that match. And it was Kildare's, it was memorable for me because I think it was Kildare's second last match in the National That's League. They collapsed then, but when you were down in Waterford you were going, will both those teams be here? <laughs> because the place was empty. There was no interest. Yeah, I, was I think his, his last match was was mine, I think. So that was that also went out of. Oh God, yeah, it was three, two out of three. <laughs> yeah. of two or three yeah, went, yeah. yeah. And of course, Cork has, has yeah. changed a few times. Yeah. <laughs> so it is shocking to see, really. Yeah. So what I'd like to ask you is, what role would you believe the academy players will have in the context of the club and the greater community? Well, I think that the, the one thing I suppose is coming in from outside you probably have a different perspective like I see Warford as being the potential powerhouse in the southeast I think we got a, we got a deal with it as a southeast regional club I think your hardcore of support will always come from Warford because there is the identity with the blues and it's a very it can be a very local emotive thing which, which can work very well for you which can be a very powerful thing but in terms of attracting players and moving the club forward commercially I think we need to have a regional outlook. We are the big player, no disrespect to Wexford or Cove. We're the big player. And if Warford FC Academy wants the best players from Tipperary or Kilkenny or even the parts of Wexford, we should be getting those players. We should be identifying that talent to bring them into the academy and then bring an, uh, an international level of academy attitude, training facilities, equipment to those players and we should be looking to progress players every year to the first team. Yeah, and you, you kind of brought it up a bit there yourself, so I kind of want to come back to it. Is I'm not too sure if, if what I'm about to say is pros or cons. As you said, we at this moment in time, we're the only Premier League club in the country in from Munster, mm-hmm. despite larger cities such as Cork mm-hmm. and Limerick being in a catchment area. Mm-hmm. And then from a Southeast perspective, we're the only club really, you know, yeah. no disrespect to, to Wexford. Is that a, obviously does the pros that we get first choice on a lot of the, the younger lads were obviously a closer point to travel to and yeah. economically and, and, and mm-hmm. from a sensible point especially with the college it makes sense for people to mm-hmm. come here for an academy but is it a bad thing as well that such larger uh, larger regions and I kind of include Wexford in that because they've actually a larger population than Waterford has. do you think that that's there's something not right there that these larger catchment areas don't have football clubs of their own People. No, I think I think it's just the economics of League of Ireland now. Right? I think when people look at, at a League of Ireland club, and, and you know that some people, I mean, I've restructured businesses for people who are going bust, and I'm looking at League Power Investments, say, for instance, National League club, and I'm going, what's the business model in that? Because they don't make money. I mean, the oldest joke even back in my day was, how do you make a big fortune from League of Ireland? Start off with an even bigger fortune. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, so it's... It's, it's, it's one of those ones where you go, it is an investment of passion, of love from an owner, from supporters, from the, the coaching staff who do hours for nothing out in the academies. It is that. So whether you could have another one like Kenny or Carlo Kenny, it's different geographically. It's hard to place that many because we don't have the sponsors or the followers to put money into the game yet. Mm. It lags. So Warford FC as a regional identity for the best players to come to, for me actually works. It, it works for us to get the better players who are looking to play senior with Warford FC with a view to qualifying for Europe, to give themselves those windows that maybe at 19, 20, 21, they can progress even further. Yeah. 
That, yeah, that, that really kind of does cover that. Um, over, I suppose, the two coming on to three years now, mm. how have you found the overall experience in terms of your, how have you kind of, there's obviously been good days and bad days, but is things, are things going the way you'd like them to be going? Yeah, I, I think in terms of where we're coming from, in terms of the talent, I think the talent pool is here. It's in the southeast. I mean, having more, I suppose, identity with the, with the Tordines who are going to 15s, I would think we, you know, we almost have an ideal model that we had 10 Waterford and 10 from outside. And given the talent pool, that's probably the right mix because Waterford would be stronger than the neighbouring counties. Mm. So if you have 10 Waterford, but you top it up with two very good lads from Tipperary, three very good lads from Kilkenny, two lads from Wexford, you're then to me getting a regional mix that represents the proper talent in the area. Yeah. So on talent ID, I'd be very positive and seeing how the kids have developed through those two years and say, yes, we're on to something here. Now, what does it need? It needs structure. We need to increase the contact hours with these players. When I came into the academy first and I was told teams are doing two one and a half hour sessions and going, guys, that's that's local football. That's not national league level. So we then took the tour teams on a different model and those kids have averaged eight hours a week by using camps. They've been out there for three or four days during Easter. They've been done five-day camps during the summer holidays. So they've put in the hours so we can get the contact hours that it averages eight a week. So we had a situation where you'd have the under-13s doing twice the training the under-19s were doing. And they're going, that's not the way the model can work. So it's not criticising anyone in the past, but with best intentions, if you can produce players doing two one-and-a-half-hour sessions, everyone would produce players. Yeah, yeah. It does take more than that. It takes harder work. And I've said it to the coaches in the academy, guys, this isn't going to be easy. You're going to be asked to put the hours in. This is about us giving the kids what they deserve. So if we sign them and they need those hours, they need those facilities, they need this, we owe to those kids to give it to them. Yeah. We don't owe it. If I want to do two one-and-a-half-hour weeks and somebody may get insulted this, I go back and do everything and do two and a half hour weeks, but I know it's junior football, yeah. which I played at 38 years of age. You know, so it's, yeah. it's a different standard. It's a totally different level. Yeah, and that's, uh, that is a huge increase. You know, and that, Is that the same level then as the rest of the club? Is that something you learned that on a national level that's what everyone's doing or is this something that we're pioneering? Or, or no, no we're, 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 we're behind some, but we're, we're not a long way behind who is leading it. I mean, there's no doubt... I would think if you look at, at Bowes and Parks and Rovers, they've taken the lead in this. And they're a step ahead of us. We are probably a step ahead of some of the other clubs in where we are. So middle table kind middle of... Middle table. Sometimes we're a step ahead because we've attracted better players or Warford has better players in the, in the locality than those areas. We probably haven't done it by our structures and our work. Yeah. So the question is, I want every Waterford team to go up to St. Pat's thinking we're actually as good at better than St. Pat's we're better players and, and go to the stages it's not a surprise you know if we beat Rovers 1-0 it's not a, it's not celebration for beating Rovers 1-0 we get used to beating Rovers that's the the condition I have and that's what I work with Newbridge Town going why aren't we trying to win this league if Cherry Archer can win this league and Bluebell can win this league well Newbridge Town can win this league so that's a mentality we want to bring in. And if that then washes those kids into the senior team, where the senior team has gone out based with eight, nine local lads, and they're going, yeah, we can beat Rovers. But there's nothing wrong with that mindset. That, to me, is a better mindset than constantly playing the underdogs and going, aren't we doing very well for coming forward? No, fort is fort. 
<laughs> and that's that's the way I'd see it now. But that and it leads nicely on to what will be my last question in terms from myself. But I have a, a bit other. Um, I have patron questions, of course. After that. what are your ambitions for twenty twenty one? The ambition now is to get some stability. I mean, we've we've had a number of changes of, of coaches and we have people moving on after being in the, in, in the academy a number of years and that happens. Every business I've worked in, there's been people move on and people come in. So it's trying to get, what I'm trying to do is trying to get in a lot of maybe younger coaches who are about to do their A license or have done their A license and bring a new thinking with them who aren't maybe tied to some of the legacy issues and don't have a history with the club that's, that's tarnished or maybe too emotional, that come in to work in a top-class academy. The moment they walk in, they're greeted by that. I mean, I can't have a situation where I have coaches coming in their way in six weeks to get gear and eight weeks to get footballs, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It can't be a side panel of football. Side panel all over again. <laughs> yeah. If we have a right key, we're oh, in trouble. Man, we? If we do that, yeah, we... <laughs> We're lucky, we're lucky enough because of what we've done with the 15s and 14s was, we, 13s to 14s, we offered every kid a guarantee of two years. So we don't do open trials. So we have, we, at 14s and 15s, we have very stable squads where we only bring in three, four players by invite because the others are in. So there's no open interview. There's, there's no, no 17s probably needs it because of the amount of guys going up to 19s over age. They need to bring in a few, and then the 19s needs a bit of a restructuring because only six of last year's are underage. So if you look at six underage, you've then got to bring up 17s. How many 17s can you bring up at once? How many outside players can you bring in? And then the pandemic causes a problem because we can't go back training. We're meant to have a Champions League match on the 2nd or 3rd of March. So that'll be, that'll be logistically, that'll be very, very awkward. Mm-hmm. Well, look, yeah, that, that really kind of covers all my stuff. Uh, just before I get into the patron questions, I just want to remind anyone as well listening that you can sponsor the podcast if you want. In two weeks' time, the next podcast episode, we'll have Kevin Sheedy and Mike Newell. So anybody who would like to sponsor that, please uh, drop media at waterfordfc.ie in email. And we'd be delighted to have you on board for sponsorship and for anybody else then, of course, to remember to give our club lottery a bit of help and our club shop, uh, waterfordfc.ie. Yeah, so I'd like to move on now just to the patron question. So all the people who sponsor our podcast via the patron get to ask any of our guests some questions. And the first one came up actually on the patron catch-up video. We had a, a pre-season video. And Anthony O'Shea from the patron asks, is there many of the lads from the under-19s still eligible for the Champions League? And he, of course, he's, he mentions there that it wouldn't really be fair for them to miss out on it, which is understandable. What is the situation, I suppose, with that? The situation is that the, the tournament is geared, really, that it's for the players who qualified you in certain ways, which makes 19s awkward because we have six underage coming forward. So probably most of those six will make that squad. Then you can play five of the 2001s, which only play them if the club is signing them. So if Kevin Sheely or Mike Newell don't sign those players, they're not in the club, so they can't play in the Champions League match. Okay. So they've got to be club registered players. Yep. I can't register 2001s. Only Mike Newell and Kevin Sheedy can do that. Okay. So because they've now given contracts, say, to, to three of the lads, I think, what, Alex, Dara, and who else would have had a... The three. They've yeah, done three. Yeah, so Niall So they've done three. So those three are now eligible to play in that tournament. But again, only if released from the first team management. Yeah, okay. That's what it was. So five at, at max five two thousand and ones can play 
but they must be with the club for two years. Okay. But if they're not signed by the first team management, they won't be club registered players, so can't play. Okay. All right, that kind of that's the rule, yeah. Clarifies that, and of course we talked about it as well. The champions we were running the Christmas shop there over uh, over the Christmas period, and all the gear came in, you know, mm. uh, to run the shop, but also the footballs came in for the Champions League, and we just thought they were lovely new stock down from Umbro, and we were yeah. some people had them under the desk with the home <laughs> and We were planning on selling them, yeah, and then we. we I got a text message off Tony Burke then to say, I hope to God you didn't sell any of them. <laughs> about 200 euros each. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were incredible there, but it was just so funny because we had to, we ran around the place and get every single one of them back. But uh, it would be harsh on anyone to miss out on it. But that is the politics of football, I suppose, really, isn't it? And well, it's a, it's there, there are rules which are clearly defined before. So it's not like someone brings in a rule to hurt you. Yeah, yeah. Those rules are there. And I think there's talk of examining whether Ireland should enter its team in the under-17s, not the 19s. Because the 17s, you have more chance that they will be registered with the 19s the following season. Oh, which they will get the claims. Yeah, okay. Yeah. By using 19s, if they don't make your senior team and are leaving the club, you can't play them, no matter what your, no matter what your best intentions are. Okay, and we have another question then. I think it's Adam Martin asked it. It was... With the stop-start nature of the underage season, has this hindered recruitment? And will this weaken the strength of the various age groups? No, well, probably given the answer before in terms of our... I think we have, on our 15s, for instance, we have 17 players entering their third year with us, which is very unusual in terms of academies. So we are an academy, and what we've done is now is saying we're now going to try to develop players we are not a dropping and signing academy. Yeah. So I would have had a fundamental issue with the FEI and had, and, and had a lot of headbang with them saying, I am not releasing. When they brought in 13s with no 14s and then 15s, I said, I'm not signing players at 12 years of age and 13 to release them after a year. Yes. I said, I didn't get into coaching to release 13-year-olds. So we now have that consistency that they're going into their third year Craig came in and did the 13s and we had brought in the rule of two years. So I think he all bar one of his 13s want to go to 14. So he'll keep that in. So that won't weaken, but we'll add two or three to it to bring it up to 20. The 17s, again, they will be a, a year where they're, they're now bringing in players, but they're being stalled because we can't hold trials or assessments. Yeah. So that will be difficult, but it looks like the season now has been put back until the middle of March or you know so it's gone well back we'll be way back even probably further than that so we won't be allowed to come to training until probably after the midterm break in February so they said they would give us the same window to do assessments and trials at that stage but I think we'll be in a much better position than those clubs having advertised open trials for every age group yeah. like we're having open trials for no age groups we want to keep it that way going forward and do you think there's a role to play in regards to technology for the kind of keeping an update on, on players training and things like that? Well, they submit videos well, or anything? Yeah, we're, 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 ahead, we're ahead in that. You see, we've now, with the help of the, the Blue Supporters Club, we'll have to mention because without their help, the academy wouldn't run. Yeah. Same with the Viking Hotel for their sponsorship. There's entities come in and they help, they help the academy. And the Blue Supporters Club directs its fundraising towards the academy. And... The last thing they've done for us, which is very, very good, I was talking to him, was we needed a VO cam. So a VO cam records matches without a cameraman and does it in three directional. So 
We've now got the video cam and we also have use of the college video cam. So we'll be in a position where we'll be videoing all our matches. Now what the 14s did and 15s did and their thing was because they had the college video cam was the kids got a copy of that match every Monday. So when they played a match the weekend, that match was given to them every, every Monday. They could watch their own performance. Then what we've done now is we're investing in a huddle license for all the academy. Huddle is an analysis tool for matches. So the coaches will drop the VO film into Huddle. They will then be able to do their own analysis in Huddle and then they can bring it into the, into the, the rooms in the, in the arena, which has the big screens and audio visual when we get past the pandemic mm -hmm. to review those matches with the kids. So mm -hmm. we're a long way ahead. We've also with the 13s of last, the first lot of 13s and now this 13s run maturation testing. So we bring an outside firm to test the kids on when their peak maturity is, when their peak velocity growth is, so we don't let players go without understanding there might be factors restricting their growth, their movement, how far they are behind. And this gives us a database that we will now use for every incoming squad and thing. So we build up a record of players. So I would have had players on under 13 who would have come into us under 13 already been six months past maturity. And we had other players who were two years away from maturity. So you had two and a half years difference between their physical maturity compared to their chronological maturity. So we, we need to know that as, a, as an academy to bring, to make the right decisions for those kids. Is, I, did, I never knew you were that in-depth with us because, you know, uh, and I, one of my que the questions I was thinking of there now, and uh, thanks very much to Adam and Anthony for those questions, uh, the thing that, that, that strikes me about that is uh, I've been watching players now, particularly on the senior team, mm -hmm. and I'm asking what's going on with the analysis because there was one or two players last season that were making similar mistakes over and over again, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm saying to the club, you bring them in, you sit them down, you show them the video and say, cut that out or keep doing more of that. You know, um, we, we bring it two points. That's then by, by sending the video to the kid with the instruction and we've instructed all the fathers not to watch the match with them. Yeah. <laughs> it's to watch the match and watch their own performance and don't analyse it for anyone. Just understand yourself what you're good at and what you're not good at. Just understand that yourself. That when you come to training, you come at that context. When the coaches do the video analysis, they more analysis about certain phases that go wrong. Why are we conceding goals from counterattacks? What's our transition to defend like? What do we do there? What was our overall shape like? So we can then point out to the players, if you look as we got caught to one side of the pitch, where was our transition? Where was our cover? We go through that, but we go through it in a way that for even for the younger players is non-threatening. That's it. I was going to ask, I was going yeah. to say this to you because I'm actually really fascinated now with this side of yeah. things and I want to kind of dive in a little bit more yeah. because I'm sure people even listening at home might not know how, how in-depth and how, 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 um, how professional I suppose is. How do you sit down and tell a 13 year old looking at the go monitoring there out of position when you shouldn't have been? How do you say that without using no, F words no, and, no, no, and, no, no, and no, waiting for fists? You do it by, I mean the method we use in the academy and we're, and we're trying to develop is called guided discovery. Okay. So what you do is you do by question. So you look at a situation whereby, say the last example was the 15s would have considered the last one to go to the Cove to lose a game. So you basically call and you say to the four defenders, look at that situation and tell me what we could have done to improve that. So you go to them, you let them generate ideas about, oh, we could have pushed to the 18-yard box quicker. Okay, and what else could you do? And then you have a tactics board up and you say, can you show me on the tactics board where we should have been? 
compared to on the video where we are. And they start getting this understanding of, of the game. Yeah. But you don't ever disagree with them. You go, okay, maybe, but could you look at it differently? Is there another way of looking at it? And keep looking at it differently yeah, until you figure it out. Because what we're, what we're trying to, I mean, I've read a very good quote is, don't give me players who do what they're told. Give me players who do because they know what they're doing. Yeah. So we're trying to increase that match intelligence the whole time. And that's that's a part of creating the better players. It's I mean, the key, actually, yeah. I, I think, personally. I mean, in my day, you were rolling out to hit the channel. Hit the channel, win the first ball, chase the second ball. You were, it, it wasn't. Now it's all the top players are scanning their shoulders, are looking for information before they make decisions. And that's what we're trying to produce. It's kind of, it's, a, it's almost a game of chess. Out there. You know, you see these guys, and uh, this comes up a lot. People would say, you know, these lads would be, you'd see the videos on the phone or whatever, and they're doing all these skills, and you're thinking to yourself, why isn't he a professional footballer? Yeah. He might have a brain on the pitch. You need to have a brain. You need to yeah. use intelligence. Paul Scholes from Man United was a, was a fantastic example. He was lethal for it. You know, he wasn't the fastest player. He wasn't the best no. actual footballer. No. His football brain made well, him. We would that though with small-sided games whereby we change the problem to have to solve. So you could be playing, they could be playing a 6v6 and a 30 by 20. They could go to an 8v8 on a, on a 40 by 60. There could be two goals at each end of the pitch that they score on. There could be a big goal and two small goals. They could be playing one touch for five minutes and going back into multi-touch. So we're trying to set certain scenarios where the player is asked to solve a different problem. So that's not me saying to him, I want you to make that run. That's the coach is creating a game where he has to make that run. So if I say, okay, I want the one touch finishing the scoring zone, he must get to the scoring zone to make that touch. If I say, Jimmy, why aren't you, why aren't you running? He's looking at me going, run where? <laughs> so the game has to, the, the coaches have to think about evolving their sessions that the player learned from the session, not from lectures. So I've told the coaches, I, you cannot speak to players for more than three minutes. Nobody wants to hear it. So no speeches, no lectures. They won't listen. So, let, <laughs> so, so let, let your training dictate yeah. what you're doing. And then we have to add in fun. So when we have the lads in for camps, they could be playing basketball, they could be playing volleyball. You know, you, you've got to realise as well, they're 13-year-olds. I mean, my own young lad, Matthew, who's now 19, or he went to the Kennedy Cup. When he came back from the Kennedy Cup, he was playing with his Lego. So that makes you realise that the age of the You're trying to sort him out for four, three, four, <laughs> two, three, one formation, and then he's playing Lego. <laughs> Is there an age that you think might that you know? And you said yourself, you send the child home, thirteen years of age, to watch a video of himself playing. Do you think there's an age at thirteen years? Are they interested, or do you think they're? observing what they're doing and they're learning from that yeah, I, think, I think there's a lot of dialogue goes on and says the under 13 National League is too early yeah. I think the dialogue is misplaced and I'd like to think I'm speaking from background I mean I've been in the game now 25 years I coached in grassroots football for 15 years I coached I ran the NACE Academy I ran the Kildare Academy I coached 6 year olds mm. I brought them through and definitely the move from primary to secondary school is the right age and the move from local football, if you're good enough to try nationally, is the right age in at the right age. Mm. Now, I don't believe in early ID at 9 and 10 and 11. I think that's too early. I think sometimes academies get the blame because the English academies might be doing it. We're not an English academy. We started under 13. Most of those kids are ready for that step up. They've played school boys football with their club. 
You got remember I started playing football at ten or eleven. These lads were starting at five or six in the clubs. Yeah. So there's six or seven years in that environment before trying to move into another environment. And the environment is different. I mean, people can it's say just it's, it's, it's but they're friends. We we brought the guys to England last year. It's saying, okay, you're leaving their friends. Well, it's the same with school. They now have another 19 friends mm. in the squad. They're very close. They have their the friendships, and when we train, there's no sign of what, what club did he play for in the past? That doesn't come into it. You could have the tip lad with the Kenny lad with the Waterford lad over in a huddle talking. So it's a different, it's, 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 it's not threatening to me. It, 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 it's development. It develops them as a person to move into a slightly different environment. Most of the guys we had would have been coached by their dads in the past. How long is a good player going to sustain being coached by his dad? Yeah. You know, they're now coming to us. We guarantee you minimum B licence maybe a licensed coach with technology aided in the best facilities, why wouldn't a kid in Waterford get the same opportunity a kid in Shamrock Rovers gets or a kid in Bristol gets or a kid in, in, in Liverpool get? Why shouldn't they get that opportunity? Just because we're on a lot of, a lot of dads do now seem to end up in uh, management roles somehow <laughs> in a lot of cases. Is the parenting issues that have plagued younger teams, is that an issue at all or... No, our dad, that's dealt with now by, by clear communication. What our formula is is, that, is to meet the parents four times a year. So the first meeting with them sets out the rules. And so I would meet the parents and say, you are not a coach. You are not to shout instruction in. You're to leave the kid alone. Because I've had, you know, I've, I, I've coached two of my own sons who played. I mean, Sean was coaching me when I was a goalkeeper. I remember sitting in the car with him going home from a game at under 14 going, you could, I think you could have done better with the first two goals. And he goes, I know I fucking could. <laughs> and then he's in bad form, I'm in bad form. We get home to the house and she goes, oh my God, you're not at it again, are you? So it's, yeah. <laughs> that parent to a, to a kid after playing, is, it's, it's a tough relationship because if they've done well, they know they've done well. If they've done badly, they don't need you to tell them. Yeah. So they need to be left alone to people who are more objective in, in what they're doing with them. Yeah, so... That, that emotional side comes out yeah. and they don't turn their attention then to you then if they can't shout at the player they're not having to go at well, you look, look, you always you always you always as you go up through you've, uh, you've one or you've, you've one or two that they might get a night but if you look at what we do with the 13s we unlike even local clubs we offer equal pitch time and equal starts so at under 13 every player plays the very same minutes in the park now people find that hard to adapt to the under-13s two years ago were beating Shamrock Rovers 4-1 at half-time and we made seven substitutions and the game finished 4 all. <laughs> you see, this is... And these, yeah, uh, to be honest, you answered my question. I was going to say, you know, there's some kids out there who are putting a hard graft. There's other kids there whose parents have ideals of them being footballers and they want their kid who's not putting in the effort and is not, you know, giving it as all as, as another player, but they're still entitled to the same, this kind of uh, quota, minute quota thing. Yeah. Is it a good idea or a bad idea? No, it, it, to me, it's a good idea, but on the quick side, you're asking that everyone is at the same training sessions. So once you're getting match and commitment, you give that. So even during lockdown, we'd have, the under four, 15s last year would have done 120 training sessions for seven matches. At the 120 training session, there was 20 players there. All 20 were there. And they weren't playing games. They were enjoying what they were doing. We never had less than 18 with that group of training. So that is some attendance when you're not getting, when you know you've no match for six weeks or you have no match ever coming up. Yeah. 
But that's because the coaching sessions are designed for teaching and for fun. And then you get the reaction to that. Yeah, that's after we've given us, you know, a, a, a huge insight. As I said, our control, we could talk about this now, you know, all day. And do you know what, Michael? I'd love to have you back in the future for another podcast. But thank you very much um, for joining us. I, I could talk today. football all day as well. We're opening now to two episodes a month, so you could be you back yeah. sooner than you think. All right. Mike, thank you very, very much for Thanks joining for us. Thanks for having me, Niall. And best of luck for the 2021 season. Best of luck with the Patreon and the podcast. Brilliant. Thanks very much for that, Mike. Thank you. All Bye. right. Uh, for our fans, of course, we have. Kevin Sheedy and Mike Newell, our new coach and staff for next season. Uh, they're on next week's podcast. So for everybody, if you want to uh, tune in in two weeks' time, we'll have that episode out for you. But from me, from now, thank you all very much and uh, up the blues.